that wonderfully wistful music you just heard was the opening of French composer Gabriel Fauré's Pavan for Solo Piano, Opus 50, as performed by pianist Jorge Federico Osorio on a new album on CD Records, Jorge Federico Osorio, the French album. Those of you who've listened before know that every time we come out with a new release on CD Records, we come out with a new classical Chicago podcast. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records and proud producer of this album, and I'm delighted that my guest on this podcast is, of course, pianist Jorge Federico Osorio. Hi, Jorge. Hello, Jim. So delighted to be here with you. Well, same here. Before we go into the album itself, I thought I'd give you a chance to introduce yourself to listeners, maybe talk a little bit about your history as a performer, some career highlights, including your early education was a little bit special. So if you could talk about all that. Certainly. I'll start a little bit with my early education. I am from Mexico City. I studied mainly in Mexico with my mother, pianist Luz Maria Puente. And then I entered the conservatoire in Mexico. When I finished the conservatoire in Mexico, I went to Paris to follow my studies And then after two years, I went to Moscow, to the Tchaikovsky Conservatoire. But anyway, going back to Mexico, I was so lucky to have had my mother as a teacher because she was a tremendous, and she is up to today, a big influence. She was a fantastic teacher, full of patience. But also part of my musical education in Mexico was my father, himself a violinist and loved music. So I was getting the nitty-gritty of practicing with my mother and then with my father going to concerts, going to the opera, to chamber music concerts and to symphony orchestra. That was in Mexico, but at the same time, I had another teacher, which also was one of the biggest influences in my music-making, French teacher Bernard Flavigny, who used to come to Mexico almost every summer for master classes. He stayed there for one or one and a half months. I started studying with him, and actually the reason I went to Paris to study was to continue my piano and my music with him. Much of this repertoire, the French repertoire, of course I was very much influenced by his teaching. It goes back many years, but still has remained so vivid, his ideas about sound. Also at that time in Mexico was very important getting to know people, so many wonderful conductors that I was privilege to hear and meet some of them. For instance, conductor Chilibidake used to come very often. The opera scene was fantastic. I heard some incredible performances of, for instance, Tosca with uh, Giuseppe Di Stefano and Montserrat Caballé before she became very famous. So there was a very rich musical atmosphere in Mexico. And as far as career highlights go, you've played with many, if not most, of the world's major orchestras, so many prominent conductors. What would you list as some of your favorite highlights? Oh, there have been so many. I've been so fortunate and privileged to collaborate with wonderful conductors like Klaus Tenstedt, Frubeck de Burgos, Haiting, James Conlon so many times here at Ravinia with the Chicago Symphony, Manfred Honeck, Lorin Mazel, and of course many of my friends in Mexico, Maestro Herrera de la Fuente, Enrique Batis, Carlos Miguel Prieto. So there are many, many highlights. Certainly one of the highlights 
in the U.S. have been the concerts with the Chicago Symphony, the cycle of the older Beethoven concerti here at Ravinia, the same thing with the Atlanta Symphony, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia. Actually, one of the highlights I regard my career is to live here in Chicago and be part of the CD family, certainly. Well, we love having you in the family. I have to mention what I assume was a highlight. You had something of a reunion with your mother a couple summers ago, correct? Yes. Being one of the most important piano teachers in Mexico, she has a student that has a youth orchestra, a wonderful youth orchestra. He invited us to play a Mozart double piano concerto. And my mother is going on 97 this year. She was 94. Yes, and it was a truly beautiful concert that she gave. The French album is your eighth album now for Sadie Records. And your history with Sadie started with an album of Spanish music, and you've had a couple of albums that have featured your Mexican heritage, uh, one of solo music of Manuel and Ponce, an album called Salon Mexicana, which was a few composers from that Mexican Romantic era, also the Carlos Chavez Piano Concerto, a major, major work. Yes. And that's with the Mexican National Symphony. You have some experience recording French repertoire for CD as well. You did the complete Debussy preludes on an earlier album, and some of those, and we'll talk about this more later, make a reappearance on this album. But before we go on too long, I think it's good to get back to some music. We had opened the podcast with the beginning of Horace Pavan, which is from 1887, and frames the program with his student, Ravel, whose famous Pavan for a Dead Princess, or Pavan pour une enfante défunte, ends the program. And we'll hear more of the foray in a moment. Now, while it opens the album, uh, my understanding is the foray is actually the last piece you chose to put on this program, and is also, among these pieces, the most recent addition to your repertoire. So I have to ask what inspired you to take up the piece, and when exactly you started with it. Well, as you mentioned, I was trying to put together the program around this revisiting of some of the Debussy preludes. And I think that the program felt quite complete, but I still felt that I needed something to round it up. Like in many instances, things just come to me. So I thought, why not Foré? First of all, I thought of Foré as a composer. And then somehow the idea dawned on me, uh, how about the Pavan? And I hadn't heard it for many years, so I, I looked for the music, started reading again, and of course I said, well, this is it. And I think as an idea of making a recital, like telling a story, to start with the foray and then finish with the Ravel, also there's so many links there. First of all, both words with the orchestral versions, and also foray having been teacher of Ravel, makes it work beautifully, I think. I think what you're saying is you actually took up the foray with this album in mind. Yes, exactly. But as I say, sometimes, and it has happened often with me choosing repertoire, sometimes just bang, it just comes to you. <laughs> I was going to say, because it's certainly from the performance, one would never tell that this piece hasn't lived with you for quite a while because it's so gorgeously played. Now, you mentioned the orchestral version is probably better known. So what would you want people, before we hear more of it, what would you want people to know about the way it's originally written for solo piano? I don't know why it's not played in its original form, like Ravel's Pavant, for instance. 
But I think it's just the beauty of the music and the way for manages the registers. Generally, his harmony is always so poignant and, and so moving. That would be my main idea when I perform in such a gorgeous piece of music. As I've listened to different pianists, the thing that strikes me as probably the most variable from one performance to another is how they deal with the staccato in the left hand. Because on the one hand, it is marked staccato. If you play it really dry, it ruins the, for me at least, the atmosphere of the piece. On the other hand, it has to really flow and yet still have that staccato feel. How do you manage that technically as a pianist? Well, I concentrate on the legato and the cantabile of the right hand and try to forget about the left hand. <laughs> <laughs> Just follow the music. The ideas as to how you solve what they call technical problems, you have to follow the ideal of what you want to hear and then work from there. Well, you do a masterful job of it, so let's hear some more of it. We'll pick up right where we left off the piece at the beginning of the podcast. So here is a further excerpt of Foray's Pavan for Solo Piano, Opus 50, as performed by Jorge Federico Osorio.
You heard an excerpt of the Pavan for solo piano by Gabriel Fauré from pianist Jorge Federico Osorio on his new album for CD Records, the French album, a collection of five different French composers. And we come now to the largest single set on the album. The album is broken into, I guess you could say, five sets. We'll talk about the construction a little later. And this one is eight pieces by Debussy, seven of his preludes, plus the famous Claire de Lume, which is cleverly paired with the prelude titled La Terrasse des Audiences du Claire de Lune. So two reflections on Moonlight there. Now, of course, as you mentioned earlier, it was a desire to revisit some of these Debussy preludes, which you had recorded the complete set 10 years ago mm-hmm. for CD. That was the initial inspiration for this album. So what made you want to do that? Well, after 10 years, I think I've changed some of my ideas about, or developed in other ways, the ideas about these preludes, how to put them together. So it's been in the back of my mind for many years. That's why I chose these preludes that are so diverse in character and so contrasting, and they go so well mixed with the other repertoire, with the Chabrier, the Clair de Lune, Soirée d'Engrenade, and of course the other pieces on the program. Somehow linking these musical thoughts make it a beautiful program from beginning to end. That's really the idea behind it all. So the program was built around this particular selection of preludes, all but one of which are in this set. We will hear one other prelude later in the program, but one I read off what listeners have in store for them. The preludes and one other piece in this set are Les Collines d'Anna Capri. Les Collines is hills, of course. As I mentioned, La Terrasse des Audiences du Claire de Lune, followed by the famous Claire de Lune from Sweet Bergamesque. Then back to preludes, Sucravu le Vent d'Ouest. Voile, la cathédrale engloutie, feu d'artifice, and feuille morte. To represent this largest group on the album, we've chosen Debussy's really amazing prelude, la cathédrale engloutie, or the sunken or engulfed cathedral. And we'll hear an excerpt from that in a moment. In her program notes for the CD, which incidentally you can read on the album's page on the Sadie Records website, that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, records.org, And you can do that. You don't even have to purchase the album. You can just go to the site to read the program notes if you're listening on a different platform, for example. So in these notes, WFMT music director Andrea Lamoureux notes how Debussy's preludes were inspired by French artworks such as paintings, poems, etc., or folklore. And in the case of La Cathedrale, it's the legend of the sunken city of Ys, Do you think about these sources as you craft your interpretations of these very pictorial preludes? Well, yes and no. Actually, when I first played the Cathedral Anglouti, it was when I was in Mexico studying with the Flavigny. I was about uh, 14 years old. I heard about this story and how it depicts the Cathedral and what happens. Personally, it helps me more when I'm teaching these preludes to give a story historically or what has been written or why did Debussy compose such and such a piece at a certain time. But in the end, I forget about the story and it's just the music in essence that drives my interpretations. For instance, Cathedral Anglutie is one of the most stunning pieces ever composed for the piano. And it's uh, interesting to note the uh, Debussy's marking profondément calme, 
And I have to admit that every time that I play this piece, I think about these two words of Debussy, and my heart is pounding <laughs> so rapidly. <laughs> so to get it to be profondement calm, it's very, very exciting. Even before it starts, I feel that the piece is already alive there in front of us. In her notes, Andrea comments that despite the very colorful names of these pieces, what Debussy himself was most fascinated by was the sheer sound of the piano and what you can do with it. I think this piece is a really good example of that. There is a little bit of a storyline, of course, with this sunken cathedral briefly emerging from the sea and then sinking back down again. And the way Debussy, of course, expresses that is with, as you say, profound calm at the beginning and end, but a absolutely huge climax in the middle. As a pianist, how do you manage that? How do you judge that climax and, and how to build that so that it doesn't peak too soon and that you get the maximum effect and then that slow sinking back down. Yes. Well, I guess it also comes from experience and where you're playing. And I think it's important to have a reserve of sound always, not to get to the peak too soon, but make it really ample and have this sphere of sound around like a reserve that you always have. You can go always further. That would be how I would approach it. Before going on, I think it's very interesting about the titles, especially in the preludes, because Debussy didn't put the titles at the beginning of the pieces. But for the listener, it would be interesting to hear the piece and then read the title, which is the way Debussy did it. He doesn't give away a title like a guide for the listener. Just the music, just the music, and that's it. So you're saying he actually wrote the titles at the end of the score of each piece? Yes, exactly. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Like, uh, for instance, Ce uh, Cavu Le Vent d'Ouest, when this dramatic and uh, overwhelming waves of sound, it's so tormentous and so full of life and so full of contrast. And then you get the title at the very end. So it's wonderful for the imagination of the listener. Like uh, trying to guess, what is this? And also some of the titles like that one are so enigmatic because mm -hmm. that translates to what the West Wind saw. Exactly, so yes. It's not just the wind, it's something else too. Yeah, and I'm glad that we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's hear some of La Cathédrale Engloutie, the sunken cathedral of Debussy, one of his great preludes as performed on his new album by pianist Jorge Federico Osorio.
You just heard a portion of a prelude by Claude Debussy titled La Cathédrale Anglouti, The Engulfed or the Sunken Cathedral, mm-hmm. performed by Jorge Federico Osorio on his new disc, which is titled The French Album. It's brand new on CD Records, and if you like what you're hearing, and I certainly hope you do, you can acquire this many ways. You can go to the Sadie Records website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org, or anywhere you like to purchase albums, whether it's Amazon.com or Archive Music, or if you prefer to stream, it's on all the available streaming sites, both the more popular ones, such as Spotify and Apple Music, and also more high-end ones, such as HD Tracks and Prime Phonic, and actually, in some cases, higher than CD quality. So however you like to consume your music, this album should be available to you and really is special. And we were talking before the excerpt about how Debussy was so fascinated by the sheer sound of the piano, and you certainly heard it in that piece. But you also get to hear, I think, the sheer sound of this particular Steinway and this particular hall, which is the performance hall at the Logan Center for the Arts at the University of Chicago and the engineering of Sadie Records' wonderful engineer, Bill Malone. What's it like for you, Jorge, both uh, recording in that hall and uh, recording with Bill? I have so many wonderful experiences. Let me go in order. First venue and the piano. I felt that this particular piano has a very, very rich bass. And as we know, Debussy loved the old upright Bechstein pianos, which had a very, very deep, rich, dark sound. I found those qualities in this piano at the University of Chicago. But it's not just that the piano should have it, it's that we have to translate that and put it into beautiful recording. And this is where Bill's artistry comes. Actually, I wanted, as an anecdote, and I'm grateful you give me the opportunity because throughout all these years with all the recordings I've done with Sedig, uh, very often I've come to hear comments. For instance, when I'm traveling or some people come with the recordings for me to sign or I give it to conductors or friends, and sometimes the very first thing they say, this is so beautifully recorded, even before they say anything about the playing. <laughs> I find that so touching, and it has happened very often, and that's, of course, a reflection on Bill's wonderful ear. As a personal experience of working with him, I find it especially, I'm sometimes even moved when I get early to the hall and Bill arrives and he's preparing things, putting the mics, and I'm trying the piano. I don't say much many times, but Bill also doesn't say much. It's like we're preparing for this adventure of this Apollo 19. I don't have to say much because it's just a warm feeling about having complete trust. I know that I can completely immerse myself in playing the piano, in making beautiful music. That's what's so important about working with Bill. And I would echo that as a producer, having worked with Bill basically my whole life as a recording producer over 30 years now. I know I can leave all the technical aspects to him and everything's going to work out great. And he is such a wonderful ear himself. Yes, peace of mind and trust. Very meaningful things. As I said, he doesn't tell me much, but sometimes he has commented things that are so helpful for me when I go back and 
we have to do something again. It's really wonderful. He often catches things that I missed and is very helpful to me to say, are you sure this note sounded properly or, or whatever? Uh, <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I did miss that one. Thank you for pointing that out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really wonderful having you go by my side. Absolutely. Oh, right. Before we move to the next set, we talked about your musical education. How much, if at all, did your time studying in Paris affect your affinity for and or interpretations of this French repertoire? I'm sure many things stay with me. As I said, this goes back so many years, but certainly the influence of Maestro Flavigny mainly, his imagination, his idea about color, and also his way of solving things pianistically. After all these years, of course, you change so many things, but there's some inspiration that will be there for all my life. For instance, when I was in Paris, it's not that I studied much of the French repertoire, curiously enough. At that time, I also studied a little bit with Monique Ass, and we did a lot of Ravel, Gaspard de la Nuit, and some other pieces from Miroir. For instance, Alborada and La Vallée de Cloche, I started studying it when I was in Moscow. So I guess you go from one to the next studying, and it's basically it's just always going back to properly read the score and bring the music alive at the precise moment. That's what it's most important. The next set on the album is a very different kind of French repertoire. The next set is three short pieces by French Baroque composer Jean-Philippe Rameau, mm-hmm. uh, one of which we'll hear in a moment. In the program notes, Andy Lamoureux notes how French composers in the late 19th century, including Debussy, mm-hmm. rediscovered Rameau after his rather courtly music fell out of favor following the French Revolution of the late 18th century. So what do you think attracted these composers to the music of their predecessor, and what influence, if any, did Rameau's music have on them? Well, as we know, Debussy admired Rameau and Couperin very much. And for me, I have a quote here of Debussy, saying, French music aims, first of all, to give pleasure. Couperin, Rameau, these are true Frenchmen. (laughs) Debussy being so French and the admiration he had for these composers is just beautiful music. And I think also as a contrast within the recital after these harmonies of Feuille Morte, Ce qu'a vu le vent d'ouest, Fait d'artifice, Voile, I just felt that these pieces in G by Rameau could like a breath of fresh air. We need something to clean the air a little bit before getting to the Spanish mood uh, uh, pieces. The three pieces that I chose, Le Tricotet, Le Minuet, and Le Gypsienne, all in the key of G, G major, and then finishing G minor, I think they work beautifully together. If we talk about titles about the Debussy Preludes and talk about titles in Rameau, like Le Tricotet, immediately there's a vivid image for me. These Tricotets, they're sitting there in a round table, talking about details, uh, light conversation, gossip. I find it so amusing. It's a beautiful piece. And then the beautiful, how do you say it? So crystalline, the beginning of the G major minuet. As you note, these are pieces in G, in fact, from the Ramos Suite in G from 1725. The first piece, Les Tricotés, means literally the knitters. 
So you also, I think, have that sense of the clacking of the knitting needles in Mm -hmm. uh, the way the piece is written, which is very clever. And then the lovely minuets. And then the last piece, which we'll hear in just a moment, the Egyptienne, actually refers to a gypsy girl. So it appears that the French of the early 18th century had a rather novel idea of where the Roma people came from. Mm-hmm. What would you like to say about this piece before we hear it? The Egyptian, well, it's quite virtuoso, very lively piece, beautiful and refined, full of humor, a lot of caprice. Well, Rameau was certainly known for his musical humor, so let's hear this mm-hmm. now. This is L'Egyptienne from Rameau's Suite in G of 1725 as performed on piano by Jorge Federico Osorio. You just heard a piece by French Baroque composer Jean-Philippe Rameau titled L'Egyptienne. It is from his suite in G from 1725, and it forms part of a new album by pianist Jorge Federico Osorio called The French Album, because it's all French composers. The next set we're going to hear on this album, as I mentioned before, it's divided into five groups, the first and last group being a single piece, and we'll get to that in a moment. But this next group actually traverses three different composers, 
We're calling this the Spanish set on the album. There's the old joke that the best Spanish music is written by French composers, and you certainly have some great examples here. Mm-hmm. What makes it even more curious or interesting is that the first three are actually based on the Cuban habanera rhythm, made famous by another French composer, Georges Bizet, in his opera Carmen. This Cuban rhythm made its way to Spain and then to these French composers. What we're going to do is hear a little bit of a medley. We're going to hear a little bit from each of these four pieces. Um, the first is actually titled Habanera and is by Emmanuel Chabrier, who lived from 1841 to 1894 and is probably the least familiar figure on the album. So what should listeners know about Chabrier and why did you choose this piece? Well, as I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, sometimes things just come to me. They just like appeared when I'm wondering about programming. I had heard about the Habanera by Chabrier, mainly on its orchestral version. So I started looking. I have an album of music, then I found Habanera by Chabrier, and I started reading it. I thought it was so beautiful, and it would go so well with La Puerta del Vino and Soiree Don Renade. Also, is on the same key, actually. So I think from one to the other as a program, they work beautifully. It's very touching, very naive-like. It's a beautiful piece of music, and mainly that's why I chose it. It makes sense, and it goes so well with the rest of the program. Well, as you note, this habanero rhythm is carried through the next two pieces, which are by Debussy, one more prelude, La Puerta Mm -hmm. del Vino, Mm -hmm. uh, Vino being an actual place in Spain, and La Soiree d'un Grenade from Debussy's 1903 collection titled Estampe. Can you talk about how this habanero rhythm is used differently in these pieces as well as any other aspects that set them apart from the Chabrier habanera? They're using the same rhythm, but they're so contrasting in character. As we said before, the Chabrier's lighter, maybe in a way, like a French chanson. I would say lighter in depth, but it's so beautiful. And then we go to La Puerta del Vino, which is such a contrasting piece. Actually, it's interesting to note that Debussy doesn't write uh, that it's like an habanera. So obvious that it's habanera. And exactly what he wanted in this piece, what he's demanding from the performer is this contrast in portraying the character in the dynamics, in the contrasts. After that, the way it follows to La Soirée Don Grenade is so interesting because, again, Debussy gives us a hint of what he wants, but he doesn't call this piece Habanera. He puts mouvement de Habanera, like movement of an Habanera, sort of doesn't want to commit that it's an Habanera, it's just mouvement. So it leaves it to the performer in a way a little more like just the essence of what he considered to be Spanish at that time. I find it interesting that Debussy uses this Cuban style to describe two locations in Spain. Soiree d'un Grenade and La Puerta del Vino, which actually we know that Debussy never visited Spain, but he got inspiration to write these wonderful pieces from postcards that he received from friends. And as you were mentioning before, I think it was Manuel de Falla that said that the best Spanish music were written by the French. I would think he would include Debussy in that. The atmosphere that he catches with Soiree d'un Grenade is just so mystical, so mysterious. It's wonderful. It's really wonderful 
from one <laughs> postcard can create something so beautiful. I actually hadn't realized that La Puerta del Vino is there when I visited. And then suddenly I was so moved because I La Puerta del Vino and said, this is it. And that also brings me to an anecdote that uh, Debussy was inspired because some friends sent him a postcard of La Puerta del Vino. And I always wonder if they were such a good friends of Debussy, why didn't they send him more postcards? Well, finally, in this group, we have some very different Spanish rhythms in one of Maurice Ravel's great piano showpieces, Alborada del Grazioso, which is from his suite titled Miroir, which you had talked about earlier. What makes this piece technically challenging and yet such a favorite of pianists? First of all, I think because such a virtuoso piece and so unique. And something I wanted to point out also for this album, so many of these pieces exist also in orchestral version, like the Pavans, Forest and Ravel's Pavan, and Chabrier's Habanera, and certainly Alborada del Gracioso. I think what makes it more difficult for us pianists is that the orchestral version exists, <laughs> and we cannot compete with that. I always have that in mind when performing this piece. And so I just think I have an orchestra in front of me mm. and try to do as best as I can. <laughs> well, and of course, Ravel was such a great orchestrator himself. Yes, exactly. It's, it's fascinating to hear and compare. We're blessed to have both versions. In her notes, Andy Lamro points out that some of the rhythms in this piece would suggest Spanish guitars. Is that something you try to bring out? Yes, actually, there's after the middle section, and especially when it comes back before the double glissandi in thirds and fourths, yes, that comes to mind uh, very vividly, certainly. Well, here are four different pieces suggesting music of Spain by French composers Emmanuel Chabrier, Claude Debussy, and Maurice Ravel, and we'll hear a suite of excerpts of all four, performed by Jorge Federico Osorio from his new French album on Sadie Records.
You just heard portions of four different pieces, all reflecting Spanish rhythms, three of them reflecting the habanera rhythm and one different Spanish rhythms. The pieces were Emmanuel Chabrier's Habanera, Claude Debussy's La Puerta del Vino, one of his preludes, and La Soiree Don Grenade from his Estampe. And finally, we heard a bit of Maurice Ravel's Aborada del Grazioso from his suite Miroir. All those were performed by pianist Jorge Federico Osorio, my guest on this Classical Chicago podcast concerning his new album for Sadie Records, the French album. If you like it, I hope you'll avail yourself of the opportunity to hear the whole thing, which you can do on streaming sites such as Spotify and Apple Music or higher-end sites such as HD Tracks and Idagio and Primephonic. Of course, we'd love you if you want to buy the album as a CD. You can do that directly from the Sadie Records website, cedillerecords.org, or through Archive Music or Amazon or wherever you like to purchase your music. I really hope you'll want to check out this album. And we come now to the last work on the program, Ravel's famous Pavane pour une enfante défunte, which is usually translated as Pavan for a dead princess, but as Andy Lamoureux points out in her notes, it would probably be better to call it Pavan for a long-ago princess. And Andy Lamoureux quotes the composer in her program notes as saying, a little princess might, in former times, have danced this at the Spanish court. It's a curious mistranslation there, because mm. I think it makes the piece maybe more maudlin <laughs> than it should be. Mm -hmm. Although the piece still has a very melancholy and wistful quality, just like the Pavan that opened the program by his teacher, Foray. Mm -hmm. But I think it takes that quality to yet another level. For you, Jorge, why is this piece so enduring for both pianists and listeners alike? Well, probably goes more intimate and deeper, more sad, and it's more compelling, more contrasting if you compare it with Foray's Pavan. has more of a longing and uh, in French, tristesse, I would say. <laughs> I don't know. It's just so moving, so touching. At the same time, always when you finish, for instance, when the For Epavan ends, you feel like everything was said, beautifully is finished. Let's go to something else. Many times while working or studying the Ravel Pavan, you get to the end, finishing in Forte, and then you just feel compelled to start all over again. I don't know. It's difficult to translate in words because it's so beautiful. You just don't want it to end. Well, and of course, music says what we can't say in words. Mm -hmm. Luckily. Great example. <laughs> yes. uh, mm -hmm. You've noted that this piece is probably more familiar to a lot of listeners in its orchestral version. But unlike Alborada, which is such a big piece, mm -hmm. I wonder if this piece maybe even more touching in the original piano version. How do you feel about that? I would think so, yes. In the orchestral version, it's gorgeous, but I think it's much more personal on the piano. Not because I'm a pianist, I really think so deeply. I would agree with you, especially in your performance of it. So let's hear an excerpt of that now. This mm -hmm. is from Ravel's Pavan pour une enfant défunte, mm -hmm. performed by Jorge Federico Sorio as the final track on his brand new French album on Sadie Records.
You just heard a portion of the famous Pavane pour une enfant défunte of Maurice Ravel, as performed by pianist Jorge Federico Osorio from his new disc on CD Records, the French album, a collection of five different French composers, ending with that piece. I should note that we're recording this podcast in June of 2020 for an album that will be released in August, and of course, the COVID crisis is very much with us and has affected performers profoundly, including you, I'm sure. I know you were scheduled to perform with the Chicago Symphony at Ravinia Music Festival this summer, and no doubt we'll have to miss some fall engagements as well. How are you coping with all this? Yes, we're living in a strange time and coping well. You know, like all crises that go on in the world, I remain always optimistic I think it will be a joint effort from all of us to resolve it. We have to be patient. And I'm always looking forward to things that have been postponed. And we hope for good guidance so that we can all go back to what we call normal, that we should really appreciate. But there's some good signs that have happened, especially in some places where people want to go back to concerts, people want to go back to the theater and so that we can somehow look for some normality again soon. Other musicians I've talked to have said that while it was not exactly welcome, they've used this pause to do things that they would not normally be able to do when they're facing a busy concert schedule, such as looking into repertoire that maybe they wouldn't have had time to investigate. Are you doing any of that? Actually, yes, I've been doing that. And also projects and things that I'm getting ready for the future. And yes, other pieces that suddenly presented with the time. And then instead of just thinking about what should I do, let's do it. (laughs) Well, with that in mind, let's look ahead to 2021 when we hope concert life may begin returning to normal. What engagements are you most looking forward to? And do you have other projects like this recording that are helping fill the void? Well, as you know, many things are pending as to how we develop So I'm looking forward to my concerts in Texas, in New Jersey, several festivals in Mexico, of course, uh, many other things. There was some plans to go back to a festival in France and Spain. It's difficult to say because things change by the week, but hopefully for the better every time. Do you have other projects in the works or in mind that don't involve packing people into a concert hall? Well, maybe chamber music. Also, some of the orchestras may be doing like uh, chamber concertos, things like that, just to keep things going. And also, I'm certainly thinking about other recording projects. Absolutely. That's good to hear. (laughs) So finally, I like to ask our artists on these podcasts, what makes the Chicago scene special to you? And I think I should ask in this case, if you've seen particular responses to the crises, uh, multiple crises we're facing now that have inspired you? Well, the Chicago scene has been always special. Why? It's, of course, the city, the culture, the institutions. It's really the human factor, the public, the friends. And uh, having lived in New York and London, such wonderful places and so rich in all the art and music that you can find there. Chicago special because it's more intimate, even though it's a big city, somehow everything is much more, in a way, compact. You get to know the people, you get to know your public, 
like a smaller place in a way. I don't know if it's fate or, or what, but there's so many since I was a kid. When I was in Mexico, I think I was 12 or 13, and I was listening to Chris Reiner recordings with the Chicago Symphony. I thought one day would be a dream of mine to play with the Chicago Symphony. <laughs> and it has gone beyond my dreams because I wanted always to play Brahms number one which I've done already twice, but then I have all these other opportunities to play Schumann, Beethoven, Liszt, Carlos Chavez. Also, once I had my chart read, I think in 1974 or 75, this person told me, well, the star's very good for you in Chicago. <laughs> of course, I didn't pay any attention to this, but uh, there it is. So somehow it's even the stars pointed me to come to this place. When you say the chart, you mean your fortune, right? Yes, my fortune, yes. That's really wonderful, Jorge. I really appreciate the time, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed learning more about this album, and especially listening to the wonderful excerpts, and will want to hear the whole thing. I certainly have been enjoying listening through it many times. Framing it with the pavans, the opening foray is just so inviting, and then the Ravel at the end is so special. Mm -hmm. It really does a nice... Job. It's almost a little bit like the Debussy prelude we played, Cathedrale Engloutie. You have this wonderful beginning and end, and then, of course, all this tremendous pianism in the middle. It was a joy for me to produce and a joy to listen to. I just want to thank you for bringing all this wonderful music into our lives. Thank you, Jim, and thanks for all of this. I think we're blessed and so lucky to have something like CD here in Chicago for all of us. Treasure this. Thank you. Well, thank you. This has been another Classical Chicago podcast from Sadie Records.